Hello and welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. Today's episode is a bit different than others you may have grown familiar with. It is one of a four-part mini-series that explores journalism and Web3. DiGiorno is a series hosted by Crypto Sapiens with the help of JournoDAO and other top builders in the Web3 and journalism space. It seeks to return to the roots and definition of what journalism is all about and to demystify the concepts and tools in Web3 that can aid in the process of decentralizing journalism. We hope to present to you, our dear listeners, with many of the novel applications that are being developed today. I truly hope you enjoy this content and find it useful in your crypto journey. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm Eureka John, and I'm back for episode two of the DiGiorno mini-series on Crypto Sapiens. Last time on episode one, we talked about the fundamentals of journalism and uh, what is going on with journalism nowadays? Why are there issues and what's broken and how can Web3 fix it? And we just basically did a gloss over. And today we're talking about specifically some of those tools that can help journalists get around a lot of the issues going on in journalism. So today I have Clint Minnick, C Street and Keith Axline all from the journal DAO here with me to, to go over some of these tools. You guys want to give a brief introduction and uh, tell us who you are? Sure. Yeah. So I uh, I first met Eric actually in the in the PubDAO Discord. So that that was a, a similar kind of media Web three DAO project that's more focused on um, started out as a decentralized newswire. And I remember meeting Eric there, saying that kind of he was more interested in applications of Web three and DAOs to journalism in particular, and not just media at large or media having to do with covering Web three projects but more journalistic practices. And so he, he brought me into this, this project and it kind of started out just as a, as a discussion group growing into a professional network. And now we're incubating various projects having to do with using this technology for, for journalism. Uh, and it's been fascinating to, to participate in and, and watch this, this network grow. Yeah, I'm Keith Axline. I'm a full stack developer, formerly a editor and writer at Wired Magazine and uh, Medium. And yeah, Eric Mack also wrote me into this <laughs> early on. And it's a great uh, overlap of my interest in both uh, technology and journalism and media and how to fix uh, the problems in both. Hi, I'm Crystal Street. I'm a former photojournalist. Um, been working in the crypto space as a community builder since 2017. And uh, stumbled into Journo Dow accidentally by Twitter um, in the spring, and then I had found my ride or die DGens, so I joined. So. Right on, yeah. Uh, Twitter, crypto Twitter, can be a uh, double-edged sword, two-headed monster, whatever you want to call it, but uh, <laughs> it can get pretty rowdy sometimes, for sure. Um, I guess. One thing that we need to start with is just kind of defining what these tools are and maybe putting these tools into some different categories. So I guess, uh, yeah, let's let's start with with what categories of tooling are there? I know some deal with NFTs, some are, are publishing platforms. What else do we have here? So I don't know what the like the most useful top level categories are, but some of the ones that come to mind are like uh, immutable storage, uh, which I think is of utmost importance to journalists. Um, there's censorship resistance and there's uh, transparency tools and uh, community tools, I think like engaging directly with the community. And then I think more and more journalists are going to need to be thinking of themselves as an independent business. And for that, there are like, there are a lot of good just business tools to help, um, you know, monetize your, your work product. Okay. So I have like storage censorship, transparency, community building tools, um, the business tools. I mean, NFTs can be great, like unlock protocol for, for something like that to be able to gatekeep some of their content and make money off of it in that way, right? And then reputation systems would be another category of, of a tool, right? Yeah. And also there's the blockchain explorers that can be used as investigative tools for, for journalists doing on-chain oh. investigations. So I, I think that, that could be 
whole other category. Maybe eventually we'll find some that are built for journalists and not just for developers or, or you know, general purpose. Yeah, that's a huge thing. I mean, imagine the treasure trove of just weird random stuff you can find on blockchain explorers sometimes. And if you're you're somebody that loves to go digging around like uh, almost thrift store thrift, thrift store shopping on the blockchain explorer to find random stuff. Yeah, and, and more so it's going to be um since all those it's pseudonymous, right? Like you can see that this address did all these things, but you have to connect that address to a person and it, it kind of allows you to uh visualize behaviors or identify different behaviors of nodes on the network um, that's useful even if you don't know exactly who that person is or what actor that is. Yeah, one of the initiatives they're working on um, is with the Diamond DAO and they're creating a chainverse is the name of the tool. And we're just advising them on um, basically how to make this, they're, they're building a knowledge graph and then this giant pool of information and we're looking at it through the eyes of uh, blockchain investigation. So we're helping mm. them um, craft parts of it that would be directly applicable to journalists that are doing this type of work. So it's not just designed for technologists. And you say knowledge graph, you want to give a, a quick little... The best one to describe that, but basically for me, it's just a way to, instead of organizing information in um, you know, more data-driven delivery, like spreadsheets or lists or whatever, basically you can type in an organization or DAO and it will show all of the connections of the humans as long as they made transactions through wallets. It'll okay. show all of those transactions and who they're connected with. So recently I was doing an interview um, for something and typed in the person that I was about to hop on a call with. Just I was curious to see if they were in this graph because there's still data that's being added to this, to this knowledge graph right now. And um, it showed some really deep connections of how deep into the ecosystem this person was, which was kind wow. of fascinating to see the connections. Um, and then as we get deeper into decentralized organizations, it is really nice to have a visual or some easier way to see how everyone's connected. Yeah. So basically tag words that are associated with mm -hmm. specific people, right? So you could say like, Ridgeline Mall in Indiana. And then that's maybe the only two things that two people may have in common of they may have been at that mall on some day, some certain day and time. And so they're connected on a social graph that way somehow, right? Yeah. And then as somebody's doing the research or doing the investigation, they can put attributions to that and source links on that individual piece of information. So if someone's doing a deep report, they will always have the source and it's, it's, decentralized you can always see the source threads um how the information was found wow so that could really provide like a really cool way to do some super sleuthing <laughs> yeah definitely it might be good uh, throughout the conversation to kind of uh describe how that's different in in web 3 um because like theoretically you could do that in web 2 but then all that data would like live with a company um who would then mm -hmm you know, monetize it for their own purposes. Crystal, I don't know if you want to speak to how Chainverse is like a Web3 version of that or if they have a good story behind that. Yeah, I mean, they're a DAO. So all of their decisions are made collectively as a community and no one owns the information. They are using this as a revenue generation tool. So it is subscription-based um, once it goes um, live. Um, but the money goes into the treasury that supports the community that then supports other initiatives, like other researchers, other data type driven projects that they're interested in. Mm. And this kind of, and we will talk about this, I think in a minute, but this also dovetails right into platform versus protocol. Um, and the evolution of, of, of all of this is in a perfect world, getting us closer to protocols that are run and open source and run by community, as opposed to platforms who are owned by crazy billionaires for the most part. Okay, so you would say platforms are more of a web two phenomenon that are centralized and all the information on it is stored and owned in one central location where a protocol is nothing but a set of instructions for a program to follow or a person or group to follow, right? I mean, what 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 is this difference between protocol versus platform and how can it be used in this? So I'll give the overarching version and then I'll take the tech over to, to Keith. Um, so web one was essentially, um, a public good. All of the proto web one was run off of protocols, HTTP, SMTP, all the things that run email and deliver information, um, on the internet 
was all built on open source protocols and it was a public good. And then Web2 came along and profit came into the equation. And basically market enclosures commodified the public good. So then we had gated walls around content and then the users became the product. And that's the clear distinction is that now we've all been corralled into these, these bubbles or platforms um, that are owned by individuals. And now we can see, mm -hmm. I don't have to explain the problems. We can see them all um, on social levels out, just out in, you know, in real life, you can see the impact of that. Uh -huh. And what web three offers is a return to protocols. But what's interesting is it's also protocols run, not all the time, but run by community as well. When you introduce DAOs into the equation, like unlock protocol is a great example. It's built by a handful of a very active team, but the community directly dictates how the protocol evolves. So if the team ever goes away and eventually they, you know, one of their goals is to exit to community, um, then the community itself can dictate how the protocol operates and evolves over time. And that was the difference between web one and web three is web one didn't really have that um, community infrastructure yet. Okay. Because a lot of people couldn't understand it. There was a huge learning curve back then to even participate, right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I'm envisioning like railroad tracks and the people who decide the width of the railroad tracks that these train cars will ride on are not necessarily the the train car manufacturers themselves or Southern Pacific. It's like a group of railroad, you know, engineers that all collaborate together and figure out what would be the most the best way to do those railroad tracks you know and then all the companies have to make their cars to fit that that's the protocol right mm -hmm. yeah okay. that's an analogy keith do you have something you want to uh well i would just point out the trend i think that's good to see like the the change from web one to web three and you can almost view it as like the the apps of web two that we all you know enjoy and use every day um being moved down to the protocol level it's like the the web one protocols were so um you know elementary that your average person isn't going to really have any use for them or benefit it was the things built on top of those protocols that actually reached the end user and so i think the mm -hmm. protocols are getting closer to the end user where you can actually like um you know facebook is a protocol and i think one key way to think about it is like it's uh it's forkable so like if um you know if facebook shuts down like all their code just goes away right or and, and except for the stuff that they've open sourced um but if one of these protocols in web3 goes down somebody can really just uh take it fork it and start it start a new version and they can mm. actually the only thing preventing like you know thousands of the same um protocol starting up at once is just a lack of uh attention that each one would get it's just not in anybody's interest but theoretically you could have like a thousand unlock protocols or mm. <laughs> any of these any of these services and that kind of uh has the, is a source of the resilience that i think we're trying to promote for for journalists is like you can like why can you trust in these tools because you could theoretically you know just take it and use it on your own in your own little, you know, on your own computer in your own little world. And so uh, for that reason, we can trust that they'll be around in 10 years. I mean, maybe we should, um, at least from, from my understanding, give a, a little context about what we're, what we mean by protocols and, and forking. Uh, at least my understanding is we like these protocols are algorithms that are deployed onto a shared virtual computer an open source way so we can you know we can see all those smart contracts that are deployed onto ethereum and the way ethereum itself as a virtual computer is governed it's it's in a distributed way as opposed to a lot of the, the kind of centralized situations we're talking about before so it the whole everything we're talking about seems to boil down to that that at root this virtual computer that's running all these protocols is itself governed in a distributed way and everything else kind of follows from that but, but maybe I'm, I'm overlooking something or oversimplifying, you know? No, um, like people used to use email. I mean, people still spin up email servers and that's a protocol in itself. Anybody can spin up an email server. Um, one of the problems that has developed with anybody trying to run up their own email server is any email that might 
be generated and come out of their email server will now probably be marked as spam by anybody operating on Gmail or anything like that. And so that's where a lot of the centralization has created a bottleneck from anybody being able to do anything on a protocol level, right? Yeah, that's, I think email is a great uh, example, um, but also just in the in its most like elementary form, I think a protocol is just um, uh, what is expected of a piece of software or like if I'm a developer and I want to use this protocol, like at the very top level, it's just going to say, okay, you're going to have to have a function named send. You're going to have to have a function named receive. And depending on the protocol, maybe that's where it stops. But mm -hmm. then we've just made an agreement so that another developer that I've never met before wants to build something on that protocol. And then they're like, oh, I need a function named send and I need a function named uh, receive. And so even though we don't know each other, um, we can build on the same thing and then our apps will interoperate because I know that this person's app has send and receive functionality and they know that mine has the same functionality. And so now we have interoperability. And so that's really just what um, allows people to make a website because they know like what computers are looking for when they go to download a website um, mm. and, and same with, with email. And so, when we're talking about protocols at like the the social layer or in more of these like app layers, it's like it's more like uh, okay, your your app has to have a concept of a follow, like so that when users hit follow, like it does something, right? And mm -hmm. or or likes or whatever. It's kind of like this the shared instruction set that we all um, we all build on, like. Uh, like Legos, as long as you can fits these little like circle patterns, then, you know, you can make your own Legos and put it on top. Yeah. And that's a really important part is that layer on top. So everybody can understand it. When I first got exposed to decentralization technology, it was through BitMessage in like 2012. And I was trying to find a way to communicate with journalists in countries that were run by authoritarians and they were Gmailing me. And I was like, God, no, that's not a thing. Um, so I, found this thing called BitMessage. It was peer-to-peer -peer encrypted decentralized communications. It was meant to function like email. And so I figured it out and then I set up an account and then I tried to get them to do it and no one could figure it out. So that layer of understanding didn't exist. So they still emailed me. Which <laughs> Okay. So now that we've kind of gotten the gist of what a protocol is, what would you say are some of the more obvious or easy to use Web3 protocols? apps, I guess, built on these protocols. I'll let Crystal take this one because my, my idea of easy to use might not be uh, <laughs> fair enough. Be the same. Yeah, my idea of easy to use, even though I'm deep in tech, it needs to be explainable to a five-year-old because I do not follow directions. So okay. um, unlock protocols are really is one not great yes. work for them and, you know, full disclosure, but um, they've evolved their user interface recently to make it very web two friendly. And now I'm just, now I can show it to everyone and it can be very easy to use to deploy membership NFTs. Okay. Um, can you give a brief description of unlock protocol? Yeah. So it's a NFT is utility. And the main premise is that, um, it allows you to basically token gate content on just about any platform possible or, or protocol. Um, and it allows you to, as, as the person that owns the NFT, or as the person that has deployed the NFT, um, you're able to control your membership without a third party. So there's no one. So if, if somebody, if, you, if you're deployed on WordPress and then you decide, oh, I don't want to use WordPress anymore and you want to take your community over to some other platform or protocol that uses an NFT as a token gate, then you can take your entire community and you don't have to, you know, there's no gatekeeper to that. Like right now, if you run something on Patreon or on Facebook, they dictate your community, how you access that information, you know, all of that. So what this protocol allows you to do is, is take your community wherever you go and wherever you want to go as things evolve. Um, and eventually NFTs are going to be like we talked about earlier. They're going to be like HTTP, SMTP. It's going to be a foundational structure within the internet eventually. Um, and protocols like this will be the ones that lead the way to that. Um, 
And with something like this, you can also do in real life um, events. So it has a ticketing functionality. Um, there's just a whole bunch of utility baked into the back end, whereas other NFTs and other platforms and protocols might just be art. Um, you're collecting mm -hmm. a piece of art. You're not collecting something that has utility baked in the back end. Okay. okay. Like as Keith was saying earlier, this uh, this platform almost allows... I mean, it does allow a, a journalist to, to create their own business. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the protocol allows you to, to take that wherever you want to take it. Um, and it is community driven. So you can just hop into their server if you get stuck and someone will help you figure out how to integrate this into your business plan. Um, as long as you have the Ethereum addresses, you can do whatever you want to with them. Um, and that basically gives you a, a deep connection to your community once you understand the basics of that interaction. Yeah, and so a journalist might say like, "Oh, I've run my own WordPress website. Um, you know, I I have my subscription list of like everyone who subscribes to me. Like, I can I can do that now." But I think uh, to me, how this differs is a lot of people don't want to be in the business of like storing private information, like uh, emails and and whatnot. And this totally obviates the need for you to like have a database of your of your subscribers like all all you know is like this person's wallet that they only they have the key to uh, has access to your um, your site and then you don't need to worry about it and so I think journalists and writers and media people have been sold this narrative of like oh you want to know more about your audience do you want to know um, so you can like tailor content and you can do all this stuff and they've, you know, been sold like these analytics products and like all this stuff. Um, but I think that kind of dilutes what a lot of people would want to do where they just, they just want to write their stuff and provide the value and then give people easy ways to access it. And even though the, the NFT concept and the terminology is a bit foreign, it's really just about you know, unlock protocols like perfectly named is really just about like an easy giving people easy keys to your stuff and the cryptography and everything handles like the verification but so that you can have faith that it's that it's this person. You don't have to like worry about a bunch of bots uh, signing up for um, your WordPress site. You don't have to worry about like it's so much overhead, it's so much headache and it's really it's it's a rare use case that like a journalist would actually get a lot of benefit from like knowing a whole bunch about you know the personal data of their audience. I think mm. it's a better trade off. And, and to, to tie the unlock example into the previous points about disintermediated protocols and and they're these like controlled by a community. Um, I th and and maybe this is going too far in, into the weeds and maybe it'll it'll lose people. But I think it it could be worthwhile to try to use this as an example for what we're talking about in concrete terms for unlock. I believe if I, if I were to create a, a membership contract through unlock and I would mint and I would set a limit for like a thousand subscription NFTs and then set a certain price for them to, to be purchased at, I believe as the deployer of that membership contract, I have the right to pull back like to, to reclaim the subscription NFTs that someone purchased. Mm. I, I believe that's, that's a function that I, that I can call as if that anyone can call after they deploy that membership contract. Okay. And, and I'm curious if like, if we're still at the stage where there's a development team that has admin control over this and they plan to somehow dissolve that central control into a community of, of people that are governing the unlock protocol if that ability I, like maybe it's just as simple as there being a function in the unlock contract that you deploy some function that allows you to reclaim nfts that have been that you've either airdropped to someone or that someone has purchased if that function can only be claimed by the deployer in that instance mm -hmm. of that contract or if there's some admin somewhere else that can call that function 
or maybe some time-based type of deployment, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about like tickets, you know, uh, and I always, I've used this example before, but, you know, say you have a club who's doing live streaming shows, you know, and you give them an NFT as a ticket. They don't have to upload their credit card information and their address and birth date and all that crap, you know, all they got to do is just buy the NFT. They don't give up any of their personal information and it's not stored on some server somewhere. And so if it had some kind of time thing in there you, or some revocation rights, like you're saying, then that could be a good solution on some kind of ticket thing. But um, they could, so, so you guys are telling me that unlock is a protocol and anybody could add those features into it as an open source protocol? I, I believe the expiration is already a feature that they have in there, but I'm not quite sure how that, how that works. If, if that means that someone can only purchase those membership NFTs up to a certain point, or if after that point they all get burned or revoked, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know, maybe uh, Crystal would, would know what, what is meant by that. Yeah, you can put a time component on it. So if you only want someone to access that information for one minute or 30 minutes or 10 years or a lifetime, um, you do that when you deploy your lock. Um, I'm not exactly, Keith's worked with the actual code. I don't believe, and I can't completely confirm this, but I, I don't believe the team has any access to the actual contracts once they're deployed. I believe that is on the, that is on the um, person that created the lock. I mean, anybody can look at the code in that smart okay. to see. And, yeah. and also, I mean, this also brings us back to the legalities of platform versus protocol a protocol doesn't want to have access to that information. They should not be able to revoke anything because then they're liable for things. So as a journalist, you also want to make sure you don't have too much information on your people because at some point those are going to have legal ramifications. And there's stuff in front of the Supreme Court right now that, about this very topic. So you do want to, it, it adds a layer of um, distance between you and the person. Yeah, because you see this nowadays in people blaming the platform for things like hate speech and stuff like that, you know, and because of people's choices of what they publish, and then the platform gets blamed for it, you know, so this eliminates and, that. Yeah. And that's the platform's fault by centralization. I mean, they wanted to, us all to be products and profit off of it, but now they're going to have to pay the price for that. And the Supreme yeah. Court is deciding on Section 230 or whatever the bill is. Um, this this month or next month and it's going to be okay. very interesting to see what how that plays out the protocol at least as it as it stands now is what has to be there but not what can be there so like you can take an nft and as long as it has like the nft protocol functions you can then add whatever you want to that contract and it'll still be an nft contract it's like sufficient conditions but not necessary conditions hmm. or uh, something like that so if that makes sense yeah and this kind of leads into another um would you say this is a platform or a protocol mirror xyz and how is that different does it can it use something like unlock you know exp let's explain this yeah, I can give my understanding of it. Uh, I think a lot of uh, companies are maybe not protocols yet, but uh, are kind of like Web 2.5. And what we're doing is when you move over to like what is essentially a shared computer like Ethereum or, or Bitcoin or any other blockchain, it's like a single computer that everybody uses. And it's so early now that everything gets backed up a lot because there's so many people trying to use it and so when you try and launch a whole publishing platform like on ethereum or on a blockchain we're under like physical constraints right now that we don't really have with like web servers you can just like you can buy a huge computer and host like a whole like medium or blogging platform with like hundreds of thousands of users no problem um and like that content, like storage is getting super cheap. Like you can have terabytes and terabytes of, of data under your control, all that stuff. But when it's a shared computer, we're kind of like back in like 1980s, like floppy disk. Like, <laughs> oh, I can't like uh, the games we can play are like literally limited by like that 1024K storage or whatever. And so 
something like Mirror is trying to put as much of their stuff on chain as possible. And there's also other distributed systems that we can talk about, like um, IPFS, where it's not technically a blockchain, but there's still like peer-to-peer -peer decentralization where it's like very robust and um, censorship resistant. But uh, I think companies, a lot of companies right now are just trying to put as much as they can like <laughs> on these computers so you can like take a huge piece of content and then hash it down to like a tiny little like two kilobyte thing and then put that on chain and then like there is like verification that that piece of content actually existed in that form at that time and so that part's verifiable but you can't like expand that 2k thing up into a blog post or a, a photo or or whatever because if you put like a whole 16 megabyte photo on chain like everybody else's work would like come to a halt <laughs> that's why we have all the crappy 8-bit graphic nfts because <laughs> yeah. those are actually on chain and then <laughs> yeah does mirror actually put articles on chain no mm -hmm. okay yeah like what keith just described um they're on are they on arweave or ipfs i can't remember um, they put it on a decentralized server, but you can still edit it. So even after it's minted, um, I can still edit it. So prior to this summer, um, when you minted something on Mirror, you minted the artwork that was associated with the article. Okay. And this summer, they deployed a um, write, uh, writing as NFTs, and they had deployed it on Optimism, which is a different chain. And when I mint now... Um, when I mint an article, it mints the whole thing. And I still believe that that is still um, on Arweave or on a, on a decentralized server. So technically, they have access to the content and could remove it if they needed to. Like if the Supreme Court thing goes through and they have to take things down, they could. So that's like, like he said, it's, it's you know, publishing 2.5 or, okay. or Web 2.5. Um, they are a DAO. Um, I am loosely in there, like just because I use them. Um, and I have one of their tokens. I'm not active in their DAO. Um, I started to get involved and it was um, a lot of action. Okay. So, but uh, So they are dictated by community. And okay. It. So they are, I'm seeing like a, a gradient of like, you know, decentralization, decentralization, and there's various things, you know, unlock is, would you say unlock's more decentralized in a way? You know, kind of being more of a protocol and then mirror is kind of getting more towards the platform side of things. Yeah, Unlock um, in its inception has um, their, their founder strongly believes in the web point web one and web three version of things, okay. and they will always um, maintain that. So they'll always be completely decentralized, protocol driven by community. Um, and they've actually had people use the token or use the the protocol and then wall it off as a centralized thing, and that's huh. like oof. Okay. <laughs> So. I mean, could you incorporate unlock into something like mirror and then token gate your articles on mirror? <laughs> you could. Um, I think somebody has tried to figure it out, but um, unlock actually created their own um, platform called headline. Um, okay. it, hasn't, it was done by a grantee. So it really wasn't done by the team. Okay. Um, and then we also um, Focher, which was um, who's one of our uh, supporters at JournoDAO. They then created an integration. They're still working on it um, to allow to basically make it a little more user-friendly to add that layer of usability on top of it, like we talked about earlier uh -huh. so that it is a little more user-friendly, but that is completely decentralized. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I believe it, it goes to IPFS and there is no person that could take any content down. So that's as far as I know, that is the only publishing platform that has that capability. So for things like Arweave or IPFS, I think maybe ceramic is in that territory too of like, distributed servers that aren't actual blockchains do you have to pay to make to add to those databases yeah that, and that's what makes them secure so okay. um, so basically people are getting just everyday people you can do it you can get paid for this you're contributing your your computer to like oh. the IPFS network or the Filecoin network. I'm not sure if IPFS actually has a monetization or incentive system. I think Filecoin is like the incentive system built on top of it where 
Um, you know, as somebody who wants to store data, I pay this amount and then that goes to people who store it. And then as somebody who stores data for other people, then I get paid when I store data for other people. Um, but there's not like a central Filecoin server company managing this. It's just like the software that powers that incentive system is also decentralized. So it, that can't be shut down. So it just kind of operates independent of anyone. Uh, okay. So anybody, nobody owns, I guess, the blockchain and anybody that wants to participate in it. And IPFS, interplanetary file system, also anybody can run those nodes and contribute to it. Mm-hmm. IPFS has its coin, which is Filecoin, right? And no, then Filecoin is a separate entity. Okay, all right. So your the gateway is what you pay for, like as a user. You would pay for gateway access. And the gateway access allows you to send it to IPFS if you're not running your own node. Okay. And then something like Pinata is a really good, again, that that user layer on top that allows you to pin and you pay, they have a free version, but you pay $20 a month if you want to pin something to IPFS and not have it get um, kicked out for non-use. Mm. So if you're creating your own NFT and you want to make sure that the artwork is on IPFS and is not going to get removed from not being used, you would then pin it through a gateway service. Okay. And that way it won't be removed. That's my understanding of it. All right. So they're all various um, degrees of centralization versus decentralization of how you get stuff up onto the decentralized network, storage network, right? And so if it's on the decentralized storage network, just because one server gets shut down doesn't mean your your data or your article or picture, photo, whatever, is gone because it's everywhere. And recently there was something, um, I believe is with the tornado cache issue. Um, Someone was using a Cloudflare gateway and then Cloudflare removed the gateway when they realized it was, somebody had forked tornado cache after all that went down Mm. and used a Cloudflare gateway to get it onto IPFS so other people could access and the forked code because it's a protocol. And um, Cloudflare went ahead and shut down the gateway, which then shut down the access to that information. Yeah. So that's where it's it's so messy. We're so yeah. early in this tech. It's <laughs> hot steaming dumpster fire. Yeah, I think uh, just framing this as let's separate like the front end stuff from the back end stuff. Like this division, I think is really important. Like it's still a little confusing to me if I don't like think about it. But there's what gets to web 2.5 is you have a web 2 front end. Like you can definitely shut down websites like unlock protocols website. Like you can shut it down. It's like, you know, unless they're hosting it directly off of IPFS, which is super slow. So nobody really does it. Like you can actually like Cloudflare or any of these like web two points of centralization can like take down the websites that you use to access these tools. But part of the confusion I think is you can't actually see any of this stuff that we're talking about, any of these protocols. There's no UI to it. Like it's just, mm. um, it's just computers running. And it's like, even if you're running a node for something, there might be a UI built on top of it, but there doesn't have to be. It's just kind of like running in the background. On it's your, code. Yeah, it's just code. It's like, you can watch some code go by, but like whatever you want to be able to matrix style, like make sense of it. <laughs> and so through these background processes that can't be stopped, but you can definitely, like, Aside from that, though, like as you try and build a bridge from that to the user through UI layers and abstractions, like each one of those things that you add on then adds a layer of um, centralization or like mm. um, things that can shut down. So like and like I said, the the protocols will get closer to the user. But like right now, it's really easy for critics to be like. Well, you can shut down the unlock uh, website, so it's uh, it's not truly censor proof. Or, or yeah, what. and it's like, well, yeah, and you can like even Ethereum blockchain needs web servers to then handle your transactions, right? Like, and we've centralized it that way, where you have to send it to the web server first, and so then those become. But the user always has the option of getting the software; it's open sourced. Forking is like copying and pasting. You can just like copy and paste it. 
and run it yourself on your computer and you got you know you can run ethereum on your computer you can run any of these things they just won't be very fun because nobody else is using okay. you connect to the network but like yeah. you could run a little like microcosm ethereum network in your house you could run you know five different like nodes on like raspberry pis and like what whatnot you could like recreate all this stuff but the whole point is that the use comes from the network effects of there having this one thing that everyone agrees is like we're all going to use this. It's not it's technology plus community and plus this contractual agreement that like, this is the thing that we're going to do. And that's kind of like the contractual agreement is the protocol is like Ethereum does these things. So if you want to do those things with us, you can do those things. And to tie this all back into journalism. And one of the reasons I got into this tech to begin with years ago was because of what Keith's talking about. Like, you need to understand the back end, at least conceptually. I mean, there's no way I could go and build any of this, but I can understand it conceptually. So I know that my information is safe and the things that I'm reporting on are safe. And when I was an active journalist, um, I was when I watched Occupy Wall Street break on Twitter and watched the way people communicated at scale at something that was so huge, and then watched right after that the Arab Spring happen, and then watched governments shut down those servers. Mm. I was like, oh, we really need to, as journalists, we really need to understand how does this information flow through the servers around the world? Yeah. If you want to build a website in Web2 world and have it be completely free, you need to have host that in Iceland. And it needs mm. to run through something like Orange Website. And then your email needs to run through a country that has laws in place that the government can't shut it down and you can't be on a .com. I don't think people realize that. If the government wanted to, they could shut down every .com with one you know, a few flicks of a switch. If you have a dot me or, or dot something in a country that has stronger privacy laws in place, you can't be immediately shut down. And if your servers are in Iceland, you also can't immediately be shut down. But then you also mm. know how to deploy them on a static website so that WordPress can be come in and say, oh, hey, we got to remove you because we just got a cease and desist from the government. Like there's an entire web happening. And that's where for me, Web3 is so important because these protocols that are running in the background will not disappear if the unlock protocol website goes down, you can still buy our NFTs and I can still communicate with you because I have your email address. I mean, your Ethereum address. And that when we break it down in that way, I think every journalist needs to learn this and understand it. If they want to protect their sources and their information and their ability to communicate in the world, we're all about to roll up in. And that's a whole, yeah. that's the segue into next week's topic. Yeah. Yeah. The censorship. I mean, there, yeah, there's, the back end understanding that's necessary. Um, there's the whole idea of also taking out the middlemen so journalists can support themselves as well. And, um, you know, I don't know how much journalists are paid, but I can't imagine a lot of journalists make a living, a, a really, really good living off of doing stuff that's not hit pieces or sensationalist type of stuff. You know, like truly investigative or local journalism is probably not your biggest moneymaker, you know. Um, so things like decentralized media platforms could possibly help people that want to support that type of journalism, uh, help those journalists make a living. Like, for instance, there's varying degrees of it. And I want to talk about some of these other platforms, too. There's PublishOX, there's Paragraph, there's Mirror, you know. And they all have varying degrees of centralization in there, you know, but um, I, I wanted to talk about some of these others like Publish OX, for instance. I mean, that's just basically um, it just allows people to kind of tip the writer in cryptocurrency. That's it. It's it's totally centralized, right? And then we have Paragraph, you know, I'll let, I'll let you guys talk about Paragraph and then maybe we can kind of compare all these. Yeah, I think let's take the mirror example first because it has like the most um, relevant cross-section of parts where, um, so you, you create a story on, on mirror just like you would on, on Medium or any other platform, but then they offer this minting functionality right and so when a user will like read your story if they want to mint it as an nft what that means is um in like web 2 terms they're basically buying an edition of that story from you 
you could have you could have just one you could have 10 you can have like 10 editions at this price you can have one edition uh at this price but in web 2 like why would anyone want to buy that from you because mm. um that would just be mirror it's like oh i bought like a record in this database owned by mirror or facebook or or whatever so you know that you don't really have ownership over that because you can't do anything with it you can't take it with you you can't say oh i want to do this with with that you can maybe like buy the ip but it's just like it's all very fuzzy and so minting is like okay we're going to collapse this story down to like that uh that 2k or just like that very small hash or whatever put that on the blockchain as like proof of like okay this person this story this author this time wrap that up and finalize it on an immutable blockchain and then link that to the actual content and media of of the story on IPFS. And then, so as long as like you have that, uh, that's proof of ownership of this. Now somebody might be able to access that, the media and everything on IPFS, but nobody can change the fact that like you bought this at this time. So you kind of have proof of, proof of ownership. And then if there's only 10 of them or only one of them, then you actually have digital digital scarcity where in web two you can just copy and paste all day and there's nothing to distinguish like that this person's relationship to this record is any different than this person's relationship like there's no there's no tracking of provenance or or ownership that's like is not tamper or that is tamper proof so people joke like oh web three is just like or nfts are just ownership of a of a record in a database or something. And it's like, well, yeah, but um, we've never really had that before because anything else uh, you would have just had to trust whoever made the screenshot, whoever says that you have access, to it, whoever says that you own that and you can't like take it to the bank. You can't like trade it. You can't do anything with it. And so NFTs are actually like that proof of ownership is under your control. You could sell it. You could put it here, you could do it, put it there. You could like make it interact with this app that nobody even knew about 10 years ago when you bought it, you could make it do all this stuff. It's like digital permanence and uh, property rights, digital property rights. And those two things like we've, we've never had in this way before. And so a lot of this stuff sounds like, oh, you could do it. You could do it with web too, but it actually, it's meaningfully different. And so that's kind of like, and so that mirror example is, I think, maybe a demonstrative of how that, so it leaves the web two world of like the UI of writing your post, uploading your photo, and then the minting of the NFT and the placing on IPFS is where it enters uh, web three territory. And those operations are done most likely by a web two server. So it's a web two server interacting with the blockchain on your behalf to do all the stuff, but you can verify that it did it properly and then interacting with IPFS, but you can verify that it all went there. Um, and then the web server's done until it like needs to read that, read that for, you know, to show you this person minted your stuff is stored over here, but you could build mirror doesn't have exclusivity on that, right? Like you could build a different UI that does, does all that stuff. Is that helpful? Yeah. I, I wanted to compare it to paragraph then and then publish OX and, and how that's different then. Yeah. Well, paragraphs hard to talk about because I think they're developing very quickly. So I don't, I don't want to say that something's sure. Cool. None of us represent these projects, you know, like, yeah, but my understanding when I looked at it before, um, was it is mostly web two and like the main web three functionality was uh, newsletter subscriptions were done with with nfts and so instead of mm -hmm. instead of going and subscribing to a Substack through your through your email and like setting up a sub or through your Substack account or whatever uh, as long as your wallet holds this nft then you can access this paragraph yeah, I, I could be wrong because I, I don't know that much about it either but i i'm under the impression that it's not 
a protocol, at least maybe not yet. Maybe there's some plans too, but I, I don't, I don't know. But I think that is, that is the main, the main point there. That's how the web three figures in is you can have a newsletter and require, uh, require a reader to connect the wallet and have X amount of such and such token to read this content. Mm. And, you know, and of course, probably if it's, you know, you can find screenshots of that content elsewhere, but I think there's yeah. like, we're getting into the territory of you know, how do we solve those problems? Um, but yeah. I, in the case of paragraph, I don't know if, I don't think it is currently a protocol and I don't know if they have plans to turn into yeah. a protocol, something that you can fork. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Like if you're going to use these platforms to publish on, you really do want to dig into the community behind them. So I highly recommend hopping into the discord servers of these platforms, which is always on their website and see if, um, you know, how do they communicate about their platform or protocol? Is it a platform or a protocol? Mm. How much access do you have to the underlying technology and, and to the people that are building it? I mean, I think that's a huge part of this. This is one of the cool things about Web3 is we're bringing humans back into a lot of these accounts. Yeah. You have accessibility to humans. Like when I get stuck on something like a mirror, I just hop in their Discord. I'm like, hey, I'm stuck. And then somebody usually gets back to me pretty quick. Um, so you want to make sure that's there as well. Like there's support for you as you're going to go down that journey because you're going to get stuck everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about, you know, other pre the previous attempt at decentralized journalism through civil, um, and then how they were using that to kind of build a reputation system for journalists via tokenization. Um, I know we're pretty much out of time. But that might be a good topic next week for the censorship episode and how reputation systems can, you know, help you know fight censorship in a way. So <laughs> and Eric can start our drinking game every time somebody mentions the word civil. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I was at the ONA conference and, and it just seems like everybody's like, oh, so this is like civil. Yeah. Like, no, no. Like civil, so. I mean, civil had a great premise. I remember when they came on, I was like, "Ooh, a journalism decentralization thing!" I was so excited. You know, in 2018, and even I couldn't understand it. And I had access access to really smart people who could explain it to me. And they're like, "I mean, it, it was just a, ahead of its time, really." Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in brief, it just provided a way for people um, to hold the civil token and to be able to contribute and give those tokens to journalists who they thought were credible, thereby creating kind of a reputation system for journalists. Anyway, we'll go into that next week. Um, <laughs> I guess we'll go ahead and finish up. I wanted to add that uh, we do have the JournoDAO NFT. And um, if you don't understand or support the mission, don't buy the NFT. <laughs> but if you do understand and you totally support what we're doing, by the journal DAO NFT, and it also uh, Crypto Sapiens podcast will also get a percentage of the proceeds of that. So you'd be supporting two projects at once. And uh, yeah, and we're hoping that these episodes will really clarify some of the murky territory. Uh, we're not going to clarify everything because Web3 is still murky territory in itself. And and if you love the adventure and the mystique of that, then you're in the right place. So. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you guys for, for jumping on and uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah.